13 through 22. I want to ask you to stand our great God to honor as I read aloud the passage. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show to us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. God, we are here because of you. Speak to us, Lord. May we continue to hear from you as we worship. May your spirit be free. Lord, to do his work. And I just thank you that we are able to be together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is one of those scriptures where Jesus is saying one thing and those he is speaking to hears something else. Sometimes that happens. So we call it miscommunication, not able to fully understand. And it reminds me of a story of a teenager who decided to go to school, to high school in Switzerland. She had lived in England. She made the trip to the school in Switzerland. And she walked around, but she had one question. She could not figure out where the bathroom was near her dorm. And so she asked them, but in England, they use the terminology for bathroom, water closet. And so when she spoke, she said, um, could you please tell me where the WC is? Well, the staff could not figure out what the WC was. And they were embarrassed to ask. And so finally, one member of the staff came up with this conclusion. Well, she must be talking about the West Side Chapel that's just a few miles away from here. And so they sent her <laughs> this letter. Talk about miscommunication, guys. Dear Madam, I take great pleasure in informing you that the WC is situated nine miles from the house in the center of a beautiful grove of pine trees surrounded by lovely grounds. It is capable of holding 229 people. <laughs> it is open on Sundays and Thursdays only. As there are a great number of people expected during the summer months, I suggest that you come early, although there is usually plenty of standing room. It may be some, of some interest for you to know that my daughter was married in the WC, <laughs> and it was there that she met her husband. I can remember the rush. There was four seats. There were ten people to every seat occupied by one. It was wonderful to see the expressions on their faces. 
you will be glad to hear that a good number of people bring their lunch and make a whole day of it, <laughs> while those who cannot afford to go by car arrive just on time. I would especially recommend you go on Thursday when there is a piano accompaniment. The acoustics are excellent, and even the most delicate sounds are heard everywhere. The newest addition is a bell donated by a wealthy resident of the district. It rings every time a person enters. <laughs> Jesus was saying one thing, and his audience heard something different. There is a, a, a word that was misunderstood here, and it was used seven times, actually. Five times, it's the word temple, or in the temple courts. Two times, Jesus is speaking of the same place, but he describes it as my father's house. A great misunderstanding occurred as he spoke, and as John is writing this down and he is remembering, what comes to his mind is this was an experience meant to build our faith that we might believe. As a matter of fact, as we mentioned from the very first sermon, the whole book of John was written for that purpose, that we might believe that he is the Savior of the world, that he is the Christ, that he is the anointed one, the risen one. That is the purpose, and it is no different in regard to the passage that we are looking at today. Unfortunately, the religious leaders that he was speaking to they were caught up in their own religious prejudices and their own religious perspectives and they were missing the true one who was in their presence. Made me think of 1 Samuel 2 verse 30 in the New Living Translation. Listen to this. He says, Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel says, I promise that your branch of the tribe of Levi would always be my priests. So I set aside this certain specific group of people to be my priests, but he goes on, he says, I will honor those who honor me, and I will despise those who think lightly of me. Man. Jesus was before them, and they were thinking lightly of him. They did not grasp the one who was speaking, who he was, and the power of what he was saying. It was missed. It was misunderstood. Last time that we looked in the book of John, he, his first sign was at a wedding where that occurred. A place of joy. A place of celebration. This time, it's the first time he addresses the religious crowd. He is in the temple but this time it is not one of joy and celebration. It is one of challenge. It is one of rebuke. Notice in verses 13 and 14, he tells us it's almost time for the Jewish Passover. Jesus went to Jerusalem, and in the temple courts, what did he find? He found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and then others who were exchanging money at tables. This was the feast of Passover. It was remembering how God spared his people. How the death angel passed over the homes that had put the blood on the doorposts. 
And then it went from that day of celebration to another feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that was another seven days. So literally there were eight days of celebrating feasts. And people would come from Jerusalem to, from all over the world. Uh, if you lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem, you were required to be there every year. But there were other pilgrims who literally traveled from all over the known world in order to come to that special city for that special time of worship to show their love for God and to take of the sacrifice. Flavius Josephus, who was the known historian of that day, he had written that there were 256,000 lambs that were offered at the time of Passover. And according to the requirement of the law, one lamb could be used for up to 10 people. So there could have been up to two and a half million people in Jerusalem at that time for worship. Space was limited. It was part of the Jewish custom that you were to open up your home and you weren't supposed to charge anybody, but you were to be hospitable and welcome them so that together you may join in worship and you may offer to them a, a place to experience God and to share with Him. But not everybody uh, was so hospitable or generous. There were guys that had set up money tables. And basically what would happen, uh, you would come to worship, but they wouldn't take your money. No, that money's foreign money. It's not good here, so you have to exchange the money. And of course, there was a fee to exchange your money. And that fee would be up to two hours of a working day. And who knows how many times you would have to exchange money in order to be able to receive the needed sacrifice. You see, those who would travel far, it was just too much trouble to bring the sacrificial animals with them. So many would come, and of course... They would need to exchange their money, and then they also had a group of people who would examine the sacrifices. And so those who did happen to bring their sacrificial animals, they would check them over, and amazingly, they would usually find something wrong with that animal. That animal is not going to be worthy of sacrifice. You need to buy one of our animals. And so Jesus looked at these inspectors these money changers and he was he was angry he was angry because what was meant to be a place of worship had become a den of robbers a place of thieves there are many today i fear that under the name of the church um, are running all kinds of cons and rackets to take money from people um, I heard of one father-son team that uh, pretty popular. They talked about during Christmas that you need to give your seed money that will uh, grow and take root and bear much fruit. And, and here is actual wording from one of their shows. The Word of God also says one can put a thousand to flight and two can put ten thousand to flight, mixing faith and actions with that Miracle-believing partnership. I bet you didn't know that your prayers would be ten times more effective if you would just send me your money. Got a good Greek word for that. That's a bunch of hogwash. That's not a Greek word, but anyway. 
is hogwash. Um, what did Jesus do? It's amazing. You know, we think of Jesus, the meek and mild Jesus, the loving Jesus. And, and, and yes, in the song we heard, that was a beautiful song, Jesus is wild about us, and that is true. But as we will see in this passage of Scripture, he's not only wild about us, sometimes he's just plain wild. It's, it's pretty interesting in this passage of Scripture, Jesus walks into the place he sees the sin. He, he sees how people are being used. He sees how this place of worship is being misused. And what does he do? He goes around to where the animals are. They're secured by ropes. And he takes these ropes from the animals and he forms a whip. And he begins driving these criminals out of the temple. And he quickly gets the attention of those who were there. You know, the scripture tells us, um, in your anger, don't sin. You can be angry and not sin. Jesus was angry, and his anger was a righteous anger. He was anything but the grandfatherly type of Savior that we often talk about in this modernized Christianity and praise be to God, because if it was not for his mercy and love by the cross, we would have no hope. But we must never forget that he is a righteous, holy God. And he demands of us that we love him back. Yes, he loved us with a complete, unconditional, everlasting love. But we too must love him. A relationship goes both ways. Arthur W. Pink writes... The Bible includes more references to God's anger, fury, and wrath than it does to his love and tenderness. Um, I had learned this sometime back, Psalm 711, it says, God is a righteous judge. He displays his wrath every day. And guys, you, you're probably not going to hear many sermons if you ever heard a sermon on Psalm verse 11. But certainly, God is a righteous God. The, the great news about it, though... It, it, it says also that he is a consuming fire, that he is a jealous God. But the great news is that fire that comes because of our sin, that his fire is evoked because of our sinfulness. But the message of the cross is he took the fire upon himself. He was scorched with the flames we, we deserve. Remember also in the scriptures, there was a paralyzed man with a withered hand and Jesus was ready to heal him. And the critics were there. They were angry because it's the Sabbath and you're not supposed to heal on the Sabbath like they could heal. Really? Give me a break, right? And so they were waiting to see if Jesus was going to heal. Uh, this is from Mark 3, 5, and 6. It says, He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Whew, man, can you imagine? But I, listen to the response in the next verse. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now, you would think, by the way, Jesus is often portrayed in this culture that Jesus might go back and say, you know, we need to have some friendly negotiations. We should not have 
bad feelings toward one another and we need to figure out ex exactly how we can get this right so that we can work together. But let me tell you something. Jesus did not come to pick sides. Jesus came to take over. He is the holy God. He is not one that we negotiate with. He is one that we submit our hearts to and that we learn from. Um, that, that's, that's who he is. And so, in, in the scriptures, we read about um, how he did approach them. He didn't come in and say, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that I turned those tables over and kicked you guys out. Now, here's what he said. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you snakes, brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? This is Jesus. It also mentions in our text that he's quoting from Psalm 69. Zeal for your house has consumed me or, or it has eaten me up. In, in verse 18 of our text, it says, The Jews answered him and said, What sign do you show to us to prove your authority? Are you kidding me? What sign are you going to show us? He just stepped into the temple and turned everything upside down. I was trying to think of a modern day equivalent of that, and I really couldn't come up with anything. Uh, I thought, well, maybe if a guy came in here carrying a big axe and just... You don't do that in a Baptist church. Matt, that really, that really is not enough. The point is, what they considered the most sacred, the way that they had these sacrifices... That was not to be disturbed. Everything was working great according to the religious leadership that ran the temple, but not to Jesus. So Jesus turned it upside down. I, I can't help but think that possibly these religious people who didn't know the scriptures might have been thinking from Malachi 3. Malachi 3, verses 3 and 4, it says, He will sit as a refiner, in purifier of silver, he will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. I wonder if maybe they were thinking about that scripture and Jesus is turning everything upside down in the temple. Secondly, when they spoke about the temple, he described it how? He said, my father's house. He could have said, our father's house, as we've all come to worship. But he was making a point. He was setting himself apart. Jesus was saying, I am not like the rest of you. I am unique. I am God. He was making that statement in saying, my father's house. And, and so they question that, and they come back and they say, well, you know, who gives you authority to do these things? Show us a sign. And so then he speaks. But let's uh, look at verse 20. I want to go in detail on this one. Um, Jesus answered, well, verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Once again, another WC moment, totally misunderstood, and we get a note about that. 
it says, the Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. 46 years and you're going to rebuild it in three days? But Jesus was not talking about construction. He was talking about resurrection. There's a vast difference there. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. You see, the temple was a magnificent building. It, it was an awe-inspiring place to worship. You could not help but gasp as you saw the beauty and the majesty of this temple. But Jesus was speaking about something far more important than a place of worship. He was speaking about the one to be worshipped, Him. And the sign would be, His body is the temple. His death is the sacrifice. Not these animals. His death. His willingness to give up His life. That's what would make the difference. Verse 22, it says, After He was raised from the dead, His disciples recalled what He had said. See, to the Jews, the temple was the place that symbolized God. It was the place you came to. It was the place that you found the presence of God. It, it was the place where you had communion with God. And Jesus was making a bold statement and saying, we're moving it from the temple you see to this temple. I am the one in which there is life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying, I am Emmanuel. If you want to know God, if, if you want to experience God, if you want to discover God, I am God. That is the direct message that Jesus was clearly sharing. Another place that he shares in Matthew's Gospel, he says... An evil, wicked generation seeks after a sign. No sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. He was speaking about what was just around the corner. He was speaking about the suffering and the march to the cross and the death and how it seemed to be total despair as he was placed in a tomb but three days later made all of the difference he changed everything and these disciples as they were looking back made sense and, you know this gives me hope because most of us are so thick-headed i have read the bible so many years and still, it is not unusual for me to read something I have read, I don't know how many times. And it's like, oh, where'd that come from? Like, I've never read it before. God is patient with us. Man, it took these guys maybe three years to get this. It didn't come at first. They didn't understand what Jesus was talking about when he first uttered these words. But it came clear. And we have a God who still is speaking. Not only has He spoken, He still speaks. And He can speak to us at this very moment. And it doesn't have to be in this building. And it doesn't have to be through a sermon. 
thank God he still works that way, so I have an opportunity to serve and to share. But the resurrection makes all the difference. And, and people say, see, and I were talking to somebody the other day, and they've been deconstructing their faith. And basically that means they're taking out all that we consider sacred. Usually it begins with, can you really trust the Bible? These are the words of life. It says in John 5, 38 and 39, that when Jesus spoke to the Pharisees, he said, guys, you think that in, in the scriptures, in these scriptures, you will find life. And Jesus said, these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Man, you can't get rid of this book because God, in a special way, speaks through His book to us by His Spirit. Then they begin to get you rid of the idea of, of worship and God being all-powerful. And sadly enough, this person we talked to has done away with the idea of Jesus Christ being the one who would forgive sin who died for us, and now who lives so that we can have everlasting life, who was resurrected from the dead so that we too have the hope of a resurrection. Man, how sad when you lose your foundation of what you believe, and more than that, in whom you believe. Jesus is not just a teacher. He is not just a loving example. He is God. And you see, there are two signs that happened here. One, he, he came in and he turned church upside down. Why? Because they didn't know why they were there. And they had lost sight of not only why they were there, but what they were doing there. It had become corrupted. And the way to fix that, it's always to turn to Jesus. It's always to see Jesus fresh. To, to see Jesus anew. To Catch sight of who He really is. Our resurrected Lord. The one who prays for us. And the one who is there for us. I love the fact it talks about in Revelation. That the evil one, He is constantly accusing us day and night. But Jesus, man, He's our defense attorney. And you know, what it accounts to is He comes with all of His assaults upon us. You know what? They're true. But here's the deal. Jesus said, I've already paid the price. They are, they are free. So there are some people who say, what's the big deal about the resurrection? Why do you have to believe in the resurrection? Why do you have to place your faith in the resurrected Christ? Why can't he just be an example or a good teacher? Because it destroys the very credibility of who Jesus is. He is not a good teacher. He is not one who is to be believed if you do not believe what he said. That I am the resurrection and the life. And that we must believe in him. We must place our confidence in him. Jesus is patient. Maybe you just now got it. Maybe you hadn't gotten it before. That He is a God who came.
to offer himself so that we could find forgiveness and know him and love him. It's not in coming to church, it's in coming to Christ. Now once we come to Christ, he opens our hearts where we want to give. I heard, uh, I read somewhere, Charles Spurgeon, I certainly can't say it as eloquent as that guy did, but he basically said, if you don't enjoy worshiping God down here, why do you think you would enjoy heaven? You know, you begin to think about that. We will never grow tired of being in his presence. Worshiping him, learning more of him, discovering who we are because of him. It just doesn't get any better. I love the hymn, Amazing Grace, you know. You know, 10,000 years, it's like we just began, you know. With his worship. So uh, let's take a moment. We, ha we have an altar that's open uh, if you need to come and, and you need to pray or a decision that needs to be made. Um, maybe it's to take that first step of trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. And, you know, the first step, it is the first step of a longer walk until we're in heaven with Him. But it is a necessary first step. And if you haven't made that step, what a great time to do that. Basically, just to say, Jesus, I can't, but you have done it, and I receive it. <laughs> to place confidence in him. Maybe it's to come to join this fellowship and to be a part of this church. And Man, we would be excited about that because we, uh, we want to be big cheerleaders for you. And I need you guys to be cheerleaders for me because sometimes we get bummed out and we need cheerleaders. But the only way to cheer is to uh, know what to cheer. And that comes only by Jesus. So let's pray. God, I, I thank you for each one here this morning. And Father, I pray for those who are traveling too, that you would keep them safe and use them as your servants to lead Jesus to people who haven't met you yet. Father, for those of us who are listening this morning, either in person or through the internet, God, may we respond to your call, whatever that may be, Lord, to just say yes to the wild one who did the wildest thing by dying on the cross and proved who he is by defeating death, the resurrected hope of our lives, Jesus. Father, may we respond to you this morning as you lead. In Christ's name we pray.